This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Heretics by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 11 Science and the Savages. A permanent disadvantage of the study of folklore and kindred subjects is that the man of science can hardly be in the nature of things very frequently a man of the world he is a student of nature he is scarcely ever a student of human nature and even where this difficulty is overcome and he is in some sense a student of human nature this is only a very faint beginning of the painful progress towards being human for the study of primitive race and religion stands apart in one important respect from all, or nearly all, the ordinary scientific studies. A man can understand astronomy only by being an astronomer. He can understand entomology only by being an entomologist, or perhaps an insect. But he can understand a great deal of anthropology merely by being a man. He is himself the animal which he studies. Hence arises the fact which strikes the eye everywhere in the records of ethnology and folklore, the fact that the same frigid and detached spirit which leads to success in the study of astronomy or botany leads to disaster in the study of mythology or human origins. It is necessary to cease to be a man in order to do justice to a microbe. It is not necessary to cease to be a man in order to do justice to men. That same suppression of sympathies, that same waving away of intuition or guesswork, which makes a man preternaturally clever in dealing with the stomach of a spider, will make him preternaturally stupid in dealing with the heart of a man. He is making himself inhuman in order to understand humanity. An ignorance of the other world is boasted by many men of science, but in this matter their defect arises not from ignorance of the other world, but from ignorance of this world. For the secrets about which anthropologists concern themselves can be best learnt not from books or voyages, but from the ordinary commerce of man with man the secret of why some savage tribe worships monkeys or the moon is not to be found even by travelling among those savages and taking down their answers in a notebook although the cleverest man may pursue this course the answer to the riddle is in england it is in london nay it is in his own heart when a man has discovered why men in bond street wear black hats he will at the same moment have discovered why men in Timbuktu wear red feathers. The mystery in the heart of some savage war-dance should not be studied in books of scientific travel. It should be studied at a subscription ball. If a man desires to find out the origins of religions, let him not go to the Sandwich Island. Let him go to church. If a man wishes to know the origins of human society, to know what society, philosophically speaking, really is. Let him not go to the British Museum. Let him go into society. This total misunderstanding of the real nature of ceremonial gives rise to the most awkward and dehumanized versions of the conduct of men 
in rude lands or ages. The man of science, not realizing that ceremonial is essentially a thing which is done without a reason, has to find a reason for every sort of ceremonial, and as might be supposed, the reason is generally a very absurd one. Absurd because it originates not in the simple mind of the barbarian, but in the sophisticated mind of the professor. The teamed man will say, for instance, the natives of mumbo-jumbo land believe that the dead man can eat and will require food upon his journey to the other world. This is attested by the fact that they place food in the grave and that any family not complying with this rite is the object of the anger of the priests and the tribe. To anyone acquainted with humanity, this way of talking is topsy-turvy. It's like saying the English in the twentieth century believed that a dead man could smell. This is attested by the fact that they always covered his grave with lilies, violets, or other flowers. Some priestly and tribal terrors were evidently attached to the neglect of this action, as we have records of several old ladies who were very much disturbed in mind because their wreaths had not arrived in time for the funeral. It may be, of course, that savages put food with a dead man because they think that a dead man can eat, or weapons with a dead man, because they think that a dead man can fight. But personally, I do not believe that they think anything of the kind. I believe they put food or weapons on the dead, for the same reason that we put flowers, because it is an exceedingly natural and obvious thing to do. We do not understand, it is true, the emotion which makes us think it obvious and natural, but that is because, like all the important emotions of human existence, it is essentially irrational. We do not understand the savage for the same reason that the savage does not understand himself, and the savage does not understand himself for the same reason that we do not understand ourselves either. The obvious truth is that the moment any matter has passed through the human mind, it is finally and forever spoiled for all purposes of science. It has become a thing incurably mysterious and infinite. This mortal has put on immortality. Even what we call our material desires are spiritual because they are human. Science can analyze a pork chop and say how much of it is phosphorus and how much is protein. But science cannot analyze any man's wish for a pork chop and say how much of it is hunger, and how much custom, how much nervous fancy, how much a haunting love of the beautiful. The man's desires for the pork chop remains literally as mystical and ethereal as his desire for heaven. All attempts, therefore, at a science of any human things, at a science of history, a science of folklore, a science of sociology, are, by their nature, not merely hopeless, but crazy. You can no more be certain in economic history that a man's desire for money was merely a desire for money than you can be certain in hagiology that a saint's desire for God was merely a desire for God. And this kind of vagueness in the primary phenomena of the study is an absolutely final blow to anything in the nature of a science. Men can construct a science with very few instruments or with very plain instruments, but no one on earth could construct a science with unreliable instruments. A man might work out the whole of mathematics with a handful of pebbles, but not with a handful of clay 
which was always falling apart into new fragments and falling together into new combinations. A man might measure heaven and earth with a reed, but not with a growing reed. As one of the enormous follies of folklore, let us take the case of the transmigration of stories and the alleged unity of their source. Story after story the scientific mythologists have cut out of its place in history and pinned side by side with similar stories in their museum of fables. The process is industrious, it is fascinating, and the whole of it rests on one of the plainest fallacies in the world. That a story has been told all over the place at some time or other not only does not prove that it never really happened, it does not even faintly indicate or make slightly more probable that it never happened. That a large number of fishermen have falsely asserted that they have caught a pike two feet long does not in least affect the question of whether anyone ever really did so. That numberless journalists announce a Franco-German war merely for money is no evidence one way or the other upon the dark question of whether such a war ever occurred. Doubtless, in a few hundred years, the innumerable Franco-German wars that did not happen will have cleared the scientific mind of any belief in the legendary war of seventy which did. But that will be because, if folklore students remain at all, their nature will be unchanged, and their services to folklore will be still as they are at present, greater than they know. For in truth these men do something far more godlike than studying legends. They create them. There are two kinds of stories which the scientists say cannot be true, because everybody tells them. The first class consists of the stories which are told everywhere, because they are somewhat odd or clever. There is nothing in the world to prevent their having happened to somebody as an adventure any more than there is anything to prevent their having occurred as they certainly did occur to somebody as an idea. But they are not likely to have happened to many people. The second class of their myths consist of the stories that are told everywhere for the simple reason that they happen everywhere. Of the first class, for instance, we might take such examples as the story of William Tell, now generally ranked among legends, upon the sole ground that it is found in the tales of other peoples. Now it is obvious that this was told everywhere, because, whether true or fictitious, it is what is called a good story. It is odd, exciting, and it has a climax. But to suggest that some such eccentric incident can never have happened in the whole history of archery, or that it did not happen to any particular person of whom it is told, is stark impudence. The idea of shooting at a mark attached to some valuable or beloved person is an idea doubtless that might easily have occurred to any inventive poet, but it is also an idea that might easily occur to any boastful archer. It might be one of the fantastic caprices of some storyteller. It might equally well be one of the fantastic caprices of some tyrant. It might occur first in real life and afterwards occur in legends, or it might just as well occur first in legends and afterward occur in real life. If no apple has ever been shot off a boy's head from the beginning of the world, it may be done tomorrow morning and by someone who has never heard of William Tell. 
This type of tale, indeed, may be pretty fairly paralleled with the ordinary anecdote terminating in a repartee or an Irish bull. Such a retort as the famous Genie voit pas la necessité we have all seen attributed to Talleyrand or Voltaire, to Henri Quatuor, to an anonymous judge, and so on. But this variety does not in any way make it more likely that the thing was never said at all. It is highly likely that it was really said by somebody unknown. It is highly likely that it was really said by Talleyrand. In any case, it is not any more difficult to believe that the monk might have occurred to a man in conversation than to a man writing memoirs. It might have occurred to any of the men I have mentioned. But there is this point of distinction about it, that it is not likely to have occurred to all of them. And this is where the first class of so-called myth differs from the second to which I have previously referred. For there is a second class of incident found to be common to the stories of five or six heroes, say Sigurd to Hercules, to Rustum, to the Cid, and so on. And the peculiarity of this myth is that not only is it highly reasonable to imagine that it really happened to one hero, but it is highly reasonable to imagine that it really happened to all of them. Such a story, for instance, is that of the great man having his strength swayed or thwarted by the mysterious weakness of a woman. The anecdotal story, the story of William Tell, is, as I have said, popular because it is peculiar. But this kind of story, the story of Samson and Deliah, of Arthur and Guinevere, is obviously popular because it is not peculiar. It is popular as good, quiet fiction is popular, because it tells the truth about people. If the rune of Samson by a woman and the rune of Hercules by a woman have a common legendary origin, it is gratifying to know that we can also explain as fable the rune of Nelson by a woman and the rune of Parnell by a woman. And indeed I have no doubt whatever that some centuries hence the students of folklore will refuse altogether to believe that Elizabeth Barrett eloped with Robert Browning, and will prove their point up to the hilt by the unquestionable fact that the whole fiction of the period was full of such elopements from end to end. Possibly the most pathetic of all the delusions of the modern students of primitive belief is the notion that they have about the thing they call anthropomorphism. They believe that primitive men attributed phenomena to God in human form in order to explain them, because his mind in its sullen limitation could not reach any further than his own clownish existence. The thunder was called the voice of a man, the lightning the eyes of a man, because by this explanation they were made more reasonable and comfortable. The final cure for all this kind of philosophy is to walk down a lane at night, Anyone who does so will discover very quickly that men pictured something semi-human at the back of all things, not because such a thought was natural, but because it was supernatural, not because it made things more comprehensible, because it made them a hundred times more incomprehensible and mysterious. For a man walking down a lane at night can see the conspicuous fact that as long as nature keeps to her own course she has no power with us at all. As long as a tree is a tree, it is a top-heavy monster with a hundred arms, a thousand tongues, and only one leg. But so long as a tree is a tree, it does not frighten us at all. It begins to be something alien, to be something strange, 
only when it looks like ourselves. When a tree really looks like a man, our knees knock under us, and when the whole universe looks like a man, we fall on our faces. End of chapter 11